Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. This is the third part of our look at Alan Klein. And I guess we're wondering, what is the story so far? Well, to bring people up to date, plucky New York City upstart Alan Klein has been playing the longest of long games and having finally secured a meeting with John and Yoko in January 1969, has managed to breach the fab wall to take over their business affairs with Lee and John Eastman on retainer as Apple's attorneys at law and also Paul McCartney's attorneys in law. But Alan wants... <laughs> See what I did there? But Alan <laughs> wants uh, all of this to be recognised by a signed contract by all four Beatles, which leads us, when we left off at the end of part two, at the start of May 1969, um, trying to pursue a certain Paul McCartney. Um, but before we get there we should probably go somewhere else. It's what we do best. Well, it is, because in, in the last part, we kind of talked about how um, Alan Klein and his amazing work uh, at managing to secure uh, the Beatles' freedom from NEMS for only twice as much as they wanted to buy it for, uh, was also trying to arrange another business deal uh, in the spring of 1969. And this is where we're going to have to talk about the behemoth that is... Northern songs, Northern songs, and you know this is this is uh, Northern songs could be a whole podcast season on its own. Um, can we can we do a whole podcast season on its own? But <laughs> I wouldn't mind. I'm, I'm I'm here for that. I'm here for that. So while Northern songs is happening, the other question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, Alan Klein is kind of beavering away, and he's not the only business person who's passing in and out the doors of Savile Row. He's not. He's not the only beaver in town. Well, no, he's and he's he's perhaps the guy with the biggest uh, attitude and the biggest. What would you say? He's got moxie, Stephen. Moxie. That's he's the got word. Moxie. He's got. He's got the. He he he's got the New York walk and the New York talk. Yes, and and this is what grabs uh, um, you know makes people impressed uh, when he walks into the room. But who are the other potential people who are in the orbit at the time? Uh, that perhaps could have been playing a role and who are playing a role in some parts. Yes, so there are other potential candidates. So we're going all the way back to Brian's uh, death uh, in, in August 1967. So the, there, is, there is a vacancy since August 1967. Clive Epstein it has made it clear he's not um, stepping into that role and I don't think the Beatles would have him. Stigwood is, you know, fallen by the wayside. Um, but there are there are other people still around. So the first 
person is really a chap called Harry Pinsker. And he was Brian uh, Epstein's accountant uh, from the olden days. And uh, he sat on the board of directors uh, with Apple. And his, his remit was really just to keep an eye on expenditure and stop the Beatles from overspending. And uh, then uh, John Yoko appeared nude. Uh, on the cover of uh, Two Virgins, and right? uh, he resigned in protest. Right. I, well. I, I, I have to say, I try not to deal with clients, you know, in the nip. Um, myself, well, you know, myself, exactly. you know. Can you make it stand up in court? All those old jokes. Uh, all those old jokes. He was, yes. he resigned, and um, then he sort of thought this is this is probably not a good idea to have resigned. So he put a junior member of the firm in uh, to carry out a detailed survey of the company books. This is a chap called Stephen Maltz, mm-hmm. who wasn't on. He wasn't uh, afraid of John and Yoko's particulars. No, no, he, uh, he 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 got an eyeful of the books. And uh, <laughs> Maltz is interesting, or what he does is interesting because it really sets the context. Uh, for for what the parlous state of Apple and the financial state of the Beatles. So he, he spent several weeks on the task and then he writes a five-page letter to each of the Beatles saying, it's not good, it's definitely not good, boys. And so in less than a year, Apple had spent £2 million that had been set aside um, as part of the sort of tax write-off because we have to remember... That's the uh, all, whole point. That's the whole point. Was it yeah. was a tax? It was a tax write-off. So all of that money has been spent, plus another four hundred thousand, uh, which was the first instalment of their payment for sort of selling the Beatles, selling their own services to the company. In addition, each had overdrawn his partnership account. Paul, most heavily. Bear in mind, you kind of think this is going to be John and Yoko with all their hot air balloons and everything, but this was slightly earlier. Uh, Paul is sixty-six thousand nine hundred eighty-eight pounds overdrawn. And they have, each of them has an income tax liability of £600,000. So it's it's not good, Jason. It's not good. And, and, and this chap, Stephen Maltz, who I have to admit is not a name that was on the tip of my tongue. Um, uh, M-A-L-T-Z, if you want to Google the man. He, what I kind of like about his appearance in the story is that... Uh, He's literally doing it by the book. He's totally yes. following his remit. He's following the money. He's doing the thing that Klein says he's the best at, which is taking a set of books and going through them forensically and seeing what needs to be done. And we kind of have to assume, well, the Beatles obviously know who he is, but when they get a five-page letter from Stephen Maltz, it's not really telling them, it's telling, speaking truth to power, and they don't really want they really don't want to hear it. And this is something that will become apparent, that they don't want to face up to the situation. But he, he and it, it is a case of speaking truth to power. It's not just a sort of forensic analysis. He actually says, as far as you were aware, you only had to sign a bill and pick up a phone and payment was made. You were never concerned where the money came from or how it was being spent and were living under the idea that you had millions at your disposal. Each of you has houses and cars. You also have tax cases pending. Your personal finances are in a mess. Apple is in a mess. So this sets the context. I mean, that, that's pretty judgmental, the way he's, you know, laying that but, out. But their, their accounts obviously weren't in a mess in the Brian era um, when, when there was some kind of oversight. Now, I don't know exactly how the money went from NEMS to the Beatles, but that was NEMS's job was to 
take in all the worldwide accounts from tours and record sales and then divvy it out to the Beatles and, you know, hopefully in such a way that they didn't really have to worry about such fipperies as, as tax that somebody else would worry for them. Yes, I think Brian did the worrying for them. And mm. you, you, there is a sense that the, the actual expenditure would not have become so out of hand on Brian's watch. I think that's the point. You know, you know once he wasn't there to, to sort of rein in the extravagances. Um, and, and this notion that, as you say, Apple is a tax write-off. So the whole point of Apple is that the Beatles have a huge tax liability and they don't have yeah. to pay the tax liability if they take the money that they owe the tax man and invest it in something. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a tale as old as time, Stephen. So, the, yeah, and what, what do they do? They, they just spend all the money in less than a year, plus another mm. 400000 on top of that. On the plus side, you know, they had a good time doing it, I'm, I'm assuming. It's, it's like the morning after the night before, and you're like, well, you know, you can certainly... It's not a mystery that they spent it. No, no. You know? So yeah, that's a pretty damning statement. Your personal finances are in a mess. Apple is in a mess. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, from the Fab Four, uh, they stuck their fingers in their ears and went la, 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 and moved on to the next thing. Um, the other person in the room is obviously Neil Aspinall. Why is Neil Aspinall not doing this job? Well, you forget, you tend to forget um, that, that Neil was an accountant by trade, or at least by his his uh, training. His training was as an accountant, but he was effectively acting as a manager in all but name. But he technically still only their their roadie. And it is the case that John did say to him, "Look, would you take this on? You you can have the twenty percent." Mm. Um, but he, at that stage, I think just lacked the confidence to take on the job officially. You know, he he may have trained as an accountant originally, but he had been acting as a roadie, effectively, and he just wasn't prepared to take it on. Yeah, and, you know, I'm sure everybody listening here knows who Neil Aspinall is, but he's been there since the start, driving the van from the early days, a school friend um, of the band, um, confidant, somebody who all four of them get on with and trust and like. And, yeah, as you say, Lennon says, take the 20%, and he, he almost is, he, I think he's guilty, or he feels he's not up to it, or he just doesn't want yeah. to, to do it. And and the, the, the trade-off is that in later years... He is the man who takes over Apple and makes anthology happen and all the CD yep. reissues happen and renegotiates with EMI and gets all that money out of Apple computers. He does a phenomenal job when the time comes in many years later. Yeah, and I think as well as perhaps lacking in confidence, I, I think one of the other things is he is bound to have realised that what was required was someone to go in there and start firing people, start closing mm. down aspects of it. And we mentioned on one of the earlier episodes, um, Lord Beeching. Speaking of closing things down. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. Dr. Beeching, who had basically shut down the railways um, for, for, for the UK government, they, they approached him. You know, that's a conversation you would like. You'd like to be a fly on the wall for John Lennon talking to uh, uh, Lord Beeching. And John says, Paula told me, go and see Lord Beeching. So I went. I mean, I'm a good boy, man. And I saw Lord Beeching and he was <laughs> no help at all. Paul was in America getting Eastman and I was interviewing all these so-called top people and they were animals. Alan is a human being. The same way Brian was a human being. Be Beeching, Beeching was basically, again, I think, What's happening there is Beeching is saying you need to axe unproductive aspects of the business, get rid of Apple Electronics, Apple tailoring. Do we need a barber in the basement? Some people, <laughs> some people are querying the need to have a pantomime horse on staff. You know, it's that kind of thing. 
I mean, Lord Beeching, he was, um, if memory serves, he was a, he was an industrial head. He came out of ICI, which is a petrochemical uh, business that was one of the UK's main, you know, uh, global businesses in the in the 1960s. And the reason why he's remembered in British culture these days is this thing called the Beeching Report, which he put out in the early 60s, which closed down all these kind of end of branch lines in the UK railways, the effects yep. of which are kind of still fe- being felt today. And uh, there was a second Beeching Report, which uh, wasn't enacted. But this isn't a railways podcast, Stephen. But uh, <laughs> you can, people of a certain age and in the UK, you say Lord yeah, Beeching and they is, sort of win. This, is, this is true. This is true. And then they they went to uh, Sir Joe, Sir Joseph Lockwood at EMI, and he said, "Why are you going to have a word, Lord Poole? Uh, Lord Poole being the Queen's financial mm. advisor." And uh, Paul went to see him, and uh, supposedly in that conversation, Lord Poole took his tie off to create a uh, relaxed, informal atmosphere and uh, uh, Sir Joseph Lockwood said uh, Lord Pull offered to sort the Beatles out and what was more he offered to do it for nothing but they just never followed up on it strange oh Paul <laughs> um, and so Alan Klein prevails so to speak yes. um, but this is still in that kind of place in time where he hasn't been um, fully signed up as a as, as a manager yet he's still trying to to prove his his worth and and one of those jobs then is the the whole apple clean out that he has to well he, he he it's kind of done in the guise of cost cutting and efficiency and you know that some people have to be gotten rid of but it's also done as a land grab for power yes i think it can be seen in, in both those ways. So, I mean, he, he is doing what Lord Beeching has recommended, which is just close down the unproductive aspects of your business, the tailoring, the barbering, the repair TV repairman in the basement who's spending all your money and just concentrate on what you do best, which is record production and, and uh, you know, be a record company. And th- this is really what Klein comes in and does. And he starts firing people. And he, he's quite explicit. He said, the Beatles wanted to be rid of the leeches, but they were embarrassed to fire them, so they asked me to do it. But I think you're right. What he does is he gets rid of people that are close to the Beatles. So he start, you know, he gets rid of the secretaries and he gets rid of, you know, there's a funny story where he gets rid of the people in the kitchen and then nobody can get a cup of tea. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he does get rid of some very senior people who are very close to the Beatles and because they're getting in his way between him and the Beatles. Yeah, but he's... When you say he's getting rid of these people because he wants to run a great record company, he gets rid of people who are able to run record companies and people who are able to manage artists and who are able to... who go on to greater success. People who could have been an asset to a, uh, an Apple that really yeah. wanted to do business. Yes, there there is an element of... Uh, sacking people for the sake of sacking people mm. you know so he, he begins by sacking 16 members of staff but that includes Ron Cass who is the US manager for Apple he gets rid of Alistair Taylor who is the general manager previously being Brian's assistant you know Cass gets a very lavish golden handshake goes off and joins MGM records in yeah. LA and, th- and then there's this weird scenario where Klein suddenly realises Cass is quite friendly with Paul uh, I'm not getting on with Paul. I should get Ron Cass back. And then that might curry some favor with Paul and he can kind of tell Paul what a great guy I am. And he, he's offering Cass huge amounts of money to come back and Cass turns him down and Klein is very persistent. And um, Cass is Californian. He's this kind of, you know, 
tanned athletic guy and he's a very good tennis player and he says to Klein I'll come back if you can beat me at tennis and you know Klein is this kind of short tubby out of condition New York pale lawyer and Klein takes him on and Cass says he only just managed to beat Klein that he he was absolutely at one point he thought Klein was going to win because of the sheer determination and he he sort of tells that story you know as an indication of just if Klein wants something he's he's prepared to go all out to get it you know um so he uh yeah he, he Peter Asher is another person who's kind of pulled uh away Ron Cass pulls Peter Asher away Peter Asher brings away such talent as James Taylor these are all people who would be useful to have in a in a you know an independent record label in the early 70s um uh, Ivan Vaughan was developing an Apple school and that got knocked on the head. What is it with people in schools? I, I, I've, I've recently watched this show about the people who set up WeWork. I don't know if you've seen this. And one of the things they did was set no. up a school. Um, pure vanity project. Anyway, that, that loses a ton of money. Um, uh, and as you say, Alistair Taylor is kind of uh, fired as well. And he's almost got this kind of World War Two, you know, going down with the team, kind of stiff upper lip, you know, if uh, I, I'm afraid we've had it, boys, is kind of the attitude yes, in Apple at that time. He, he, he is quite bitter. And he talks about, uh, you, you know, um, it's, it's Peter Brown that has to deliver the message um, that says, you know, I'm sorry, you're gone. Ron, uh, Ron Cass is gone. And... Uh, he said, I was shocked, but I was not surprised. You're joking, aren't you? I gasped as I struggled to come to terms with my life being turned upside down. No, I'm not, replied Peter sadly. Alistair, I wanted to tell you myself before one of Klein's people told you. I went back to my office to ring the boys, not to plead for my job back, but just to make sure they knew what was going on. The whole philosophy of Apple was taking care of people. So I felt sure they would want each. They would want uh, information. I rang each of them, Paul, John, George, Ringo, in that order, and not one of them took my call. I got excuses from embarrassed wives and secretaries. I heard nervous beetle voices in the background, but not one of my four famous friends came to the phone. And that hurt a hell of a lot more than getting the sack. Yeah, that's... Um, that's So they are acquiescing in this. Yes. They're, they're not kind of I don't want to say they're not man enough, but you know, they, they're not prepared to go and face these people down. People like Alistair Taylor, people like Ivan Vaughan that they've known for years and years and years, they're not prepared to do that themselves. And they are all, including Paul, quite happy to let Klein go in and get rid of these people. But that's okay, in a way. I mean, we could argue about who we got rid of and how we got rid of them, but the notion that the talent shouldn't have to do some of this stuff themselves, I think is reasonable. Now, saner heads would have gotten rid of maybe different people or restructured things in a different way. But, you know, the Beatles can't be getting involved with some of this stuff. Well, I I take that point. But I think what you've got to bear in mind is Apple was all about doing things in a different way. True. And one of the big criticisms of Klein is always he brought this ruthless uh, sort of efficiency to what he did and he was very brutal and he got rid of people and he you know there's that scene in the ruttles where people would rather hang themselves than <laughs> commit suicide than, than meet Ron the client 
But actually, all of this is happening with the full knowledge and authority of all four of the Beatles. That's the important thing I think we've got to bear in mind here. All four of them, including Paul, mm. you know, they're, they're keeping a distance. They're, they're distancing themselves from what Klein is doing, but they're letting him do it. And he's working without a contract here. Well, I, well I've no doubt that Paul acquiesced because, again, we've kind of touched on this once or twice during these episodes. But you look at Paul's business setup now, which was set up by the Eastmans. It's a very efficient business. Like, there's no, yeah. um, what would you say, there's no waste. Uh, there's no, it's, it's no. very lean the way Paul's business is, is set up. But I think I think the responsibility for this does not lie with Klein. The responsibility lies with the Beatles. And very often it's characterised as it was Klein doing this. Yeah. I'm not saying there wasn't an element of he was picking and choosing, you know, who he was getting rid of. And that obviously it, it improved his position. But he was basically doing what the Beatles wanted him to do at this point. Mm. And uh, even uh, the Zappel label was shut down, uh, leaving Barry Miles stuck in New York uh, with Allen Ginsberg. Allen Ginsberg, of course, famous for appearing on the Flaming Pie box set. I think that's what he's most famous for. I'm that's right. what he's most famous yeah, for. Definitely most famous for. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, this is all happening. So I guess, you know, when around this time... Uh, John is writing the line, you know, Peter Brown called to say, you can make it okay. There mightn't have been anyone else in the office to ring him uh, at that point. Peter Brown is hanging around on his own and there's probably an echo and uh, there's no secretaries. There's no one to make the tea and that's it, really. That's it. That's it. Uh, So the other, these are the dramatis personae, so to speak, that are kind of circulating at this point in time. But as we mentioned at the top, the big ticket item is Northern Songs, because there have been issues arising with Northern Songs that uh, the Beatles want to gain ownership. So in the, in the grand scheme of their professional lives, they are tethered to EMI, NEMS and Northern Songs. And yes. they are the, the kind of the three legs of the stool that uh, Klein is out to try and renegotiate and manoeuvre and reset in their favour. Yes, because what, what happens is, although we're sort of breaking this down into different different sort of aspects, you know, the NEMS deal, the staff cutting, all of this is happening at the same time. Yes. And it's also, we should say, it's happening at the same time as a group who are trying to record records, put out singles, you know, sit on a load of yes. get back footage and figure out what to do with it. They're still trying to function as a group and they're, you know, they are, you know, in the spring of... 69, putting out the Get Back single, putting out the Bad of John Yoko single. There's, there's all that nuts and bolts is happening as well. It is. And this, this is one of those periods where I think everybody will be familiar with individual things that happen. Mm. You know, the bed in and, and, and uh, you know, the Northern songs and Klein and all that. And all. But it's putting that all into our timeline and saying how much of that was all happening at once. So in early March of 1969, and bear in mind, you know, how close we are off the back of Get Back. Mm-hmm. Klein has arrived, uh, uh, NEMS is happening, and then suddenly in early March, Northern Songs comes into play because Dick James and his partner, uh, Charles Silver, decide to sell their shares in Northern Songs. Now, this is the point at which people are we're probably going to have to give them five or ten minutes to go and get a pen, piece of paper, a pencil, <laughs> get... Get some red thread to, to, and some drawing pins in order to connect uh, It's Yes. And a yes, large to connect board. all of this. Yes, so uh, so by way of background, I'm just going to give you 20, 30 minutes of background on <laughs> Northern Songs. So Northern Songs was the publishing company that was created in 1963 by Dick James. Dick James, 
appears in Get Back. and A wonderful moment. It is a wonderful, wonderful moment. And I, I, it was, I think it was at that point that I realised how accurate Barry Cryer's impersonation <laughs> of D- Dick Jaws, the music publisher of No Fixed Talent uh, in the Ruttles, actually actually was but um yeah so he he we know he had a, he was a singer in yep. the past he sang the theme tune for robin hood um robin hood robin which, hood running through the glen thank you that it's one? like having dick, dick james in the room <laughs> and uh that was that was produced by uh george martin once again there you go it's all connected um it's all it's all connected so anyway he sets up isn't, isn't that the song with an arrow on it it is the song with an arrow. That's a, that's a fun fact. It has a, it was a hit single in 1956, and it has a sound of an arrow in flight. And George Martin actually got an archer to come into Studio Two and fire arrows past a series of microphones to get the right sound, but realised pretty quickly it didn't work. And in the end, he used the slowed down sound of a ruler being sort of twanged against the desk. We've all done that. Do you yes, have that? yes, we should, yes, we yes. Ins- insert, insert sound effect at this moment. And uh, who else? Who else shot bows and arrows around the studio? Well, Paul. Well, yeah, it is Paul. For well, I should yeah. say arrow through me on his 1979 magnum opus, Back to the Egg. But that's not the truth, is it? No, Krina Crore. And he went to Harrods and he spent a long time. But see, you know, if he'd asked, bothered to ask George Martin, he would said, "No, no, just, you need to do all that. Just twang a ruler on the desk, and it'll it'll be exactly the same." <laughs> uh, you, you've completely just derailed Sorry, I've my derailed uh, that. No, analysis. I just, I just, of, uh, I just knew that was a thing. Um, so anyway, so it's a private company, and Dick James owns fifty percent with Charles Silver. John has twenty percent. Paul has twenty percent, and Brian Epstein has ten percent. And that is the way it is constituted. There's lots of other uh, corporate shenanigans uh, going on in the background with um, Landmark Limited, MacLean Inc. in the, in America, and we not into all of that but this is a private company uh it's earning a lot of money there's a big tax liability in early 1965 and there's a decision taken to float the company on the stock market which is basically that the company was going to issue more shares and sell those or make those available to the public so you can buy shares in northern songs and the reason for that is uk income tax mm-hmm. had a top rate of 83 percent in the early 1960s, and there was an additional 15% surtax on top earners like the Beatles. But what there wasn't in in 1964-65 was capital gains tax. So if you you sold an asset and made a gain, you didn't pay tax on that. Mm. And capital gains tax only came in in the in the UK in April. 1965. So any gain before April 1965, you could take that tax-free, whereas as opposed to, to income. Right. Okay. I'm I'm tr- I'm paying attention. I'm following. Uh, it, it's pretty revolutionary, or was at the time, or or it was kind of new showbiz that a publishing company would go on to the stock exchange. We perhaps take it for granted now, particularly in the 21st century era of these kind of publishing rights companies buying up the Dylan catalogue and the Springsteen yeah. catalogue and all the rest. That these things have a, you know, a financial value or an asset as a, as a as a package or as a tool of finance. But Northern Songs going on the stock exchange was a a, a unique deal and you know very far sighted in a way, even if it was a tax dodge at heart. 
Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, there have been some criticisms and people saying, oh, they could have done other things, or they could have moved offshore, or they could have done this, that, or the other. Brian Epstein was not particularly keen on this, and he, he sort of absented himself from the process because he wasn't entirely convinced this was going to, going to, going to work out. Northern Song is a very young company at that stage. Mm. Usually you would have to be trading for at least five years to, to before you would be allowed to do this by, by the uh, stock exchange authorities. You were saying you were paying attention when I was outlining <laughs> all of that. I think you're probably paying more attention than the Beatles because the decision was taken in February 1965 and only John Lennon was present. I mean, you think he'd be the least yeah. uh, kind of interested in, 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 in this. But... Essentially, what they do is they they issue five million shares, of which one point two five million were made available to the public, mm-hmm. and the minimum buy was two hundred shares at a time, and they were valued at thirty nine p. That's amazing. That's amazing. So wait a sec. I should I should multiply thirty nine p by uh, two million, shouldn't I? Uh, thirty nine times two million is the valuation of the company. Uh, and that is, oh, it only says, what, they only think the company's worth 780 grand? No, 39p times 5 million. Oh, five, oh sorry, by 5 million. There were 5 million, million shares. There were 5 million shares issued, of which 1.25 million so were then, made available to the public. That makes it a valuation of about just under 2 million, that Northern Songs was worth 2 million in 1965. Yeah. Gosh, that's a, well, that's a lot of money in 1965. And bear in mind, the asset, the the, the assets on which this valuation are are songs yeah. written by these two two guys from Liverpool that nobody knows, uh, you know. But in 1965, the the number of cover versions and the money being generated from cover versions and things like that doesn't really start to kick in until late 65, 66, and then suddenly there's by by 1966 there was something like 2,900 cover versions of yeah. of songs, and so this was not expected to be a hugely successful flotation, and it wasn't particularly successful. Mm-hmm. Um, the shares were put out at that price, and then the share price fell. But then it started to go back up again. And yeah. in that sort of interregnum, when the share price fell, uh, various other people connected with the Beatles were buying up the shares. You know, uh, there's a chap called Isherwood who was involved in this, and he was saying, you know, he had some, some money lying around for clients, and he was investing in this because... No one was sure yep. whether Northern Songs... This is going to be a long-term... You know, it's easy for us to say now, as you say, in the context of people paying millions for shares or, or we know what happened. We know the Beatles are still around 50 years, 60 years later. No one knew if this was going to... Uh, but even at the time, there is... Like, there's there's a book by Clinton Halen called One for the Money, which is kind of a history of music publishing. Music publishing is still generally new at this point. It's a turn-of-the-20th-century type of business exercise. And... You know, you can get phenomenally very philosophical about it and say, well, why? how can anyone actually own a song? You know, that's how many of the early kind of blues and traditional copyrights were signed up because, you know, like, you know, similarly to how can you possibly own land? People didn't realise that there was an intrinsic value in some of these songs. And so as a, as a, as a business, publishing is about, you know, 70 years old, I suppose, at that point. You know, it comes on with the recorded song. But most of the money is made from you know, sheet music sales. And, you know, the Beatles are kind of representing a different type of publishing through cover versions and electronic recordings that, you know, isn't really to do with the early phases of uh, music publishing. So it is a, a new world. And But if you're farsighted enough, you can kind of see that that's where the money is going to be. 
this is it. I mean, we, we you, you know, it's sort of famously, it was uh, Paul said, you know, he didn't realize you could own songs whenever they were writing songs. Yeah. But this, 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 uh, this Nets, Paul and John, £94,270 each, tax-free, which, which, you know, in 19, I should have done the conversion, but in 1965, that was, uh, checks notes, a lot of money. <laughs> well, the, the thing I would say is, yeah, there, there's 5 million shares, 1.25 million go available to the public, that leaves 3.75 million shares, and split up by the percentages, uh, Dick James gets about 930,000, Charles Silver gets 930,000, John and Paul gets 750,000 each, NEMS as an enterprise gets 375,000, and we talked in the last episode about the NEMS share of Northern Song. Mm-hmm. And George and Ringo get 40,000 shares each. And as you say, they get uh, just under £95,000 from that. And that would pay off, for instance, Paul's Cavendish Avenue house, which cost about seventy two grand or in and around that time. So not, uh, uh, not a, a, an inconsiderable sum of money. Not not an insubstantial. <laughs> um, so the, the remaining shares then... Uh, are owned largely by financial institutions, but also some private individuals who have, have, have snapped up shares. You know, you and I would have been buying some shares in... in oh, absolutely. And, and it's maybe worth parking that notion that there's a couple of fun Beetleheads who've gone off and bought themselves 200 shares just for the, the hell of it. For the crack, you might say, Stephen. Just for the crack. And, um, you know, the, they are... Uh, they're kind of scattered to the four winds of the globe and we should just maybe keep that notion parked for later on in our discussion. Um, so we should go back then to the point in time where Dick James and Charles Silver decided to make a break from Northern Songs. You know what that means. It's time for a break. End of part one. Intermission. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So it is the 28th of March, 1969. Dick James and Charles Silver, the owners, uh, main owners of uh, shares in Northern Songs decide that it's time to sell up and go home. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a free-for-all. There is no agreement in place that says somebody gets first refusal or anybody, you know, is allowed to make a bid before anybody else. This is a big problem. And it's difficult to see why there wasn't a shareholders agreement between all of the parties that basically said if one person wants to sell, they have to offer the shares to their co-shareholders, you know, that right of first refusal. And, uh, you know, again, I think when the company is set up back in 1963, there is a naivety there. Somebody should have been looking out uh, for for, uh, 
the, the Beatles. Brian was obviously slightly out of his depth. What I would say is this is the type of publishing contract that, that Dick James had with the Beatles, that Elton John would, had with Dick James, and he would subsequently get this his contract voided by the courts um, just for that very yeah. reason, that there, there was no independent advice. But yeah, I mean, any lawyer worth his salt in 1963 or today would be saying there needs to be a shareholders agreement um, and, and a right of first refusal. The question arises, why did Dick James decide to sell he was making money you know the the, the white album was was uh, uh bringing in the cash he was making money so why did he decide to sell well we see dick james as you say and get back and he's he looks like he's traveled from a, a portal from you know five years earlier just to visit them in 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 twickenham and you know he might have a sense of what the group is like at that point in time and what the vibe is like in twickenham but um, you know, he he might sort of feel, oh, this this is, he might have gotten a sense. Well, this is end days, and the gravy train has to end somewhere, and he didn't have the the far sightedness to to go along with it. Um, but maybe he was just trying to avoid Alan Klein and just get out of Dodge before Klein came after him. This this is this this is very true. Um, so I think yeah, he he obviously he also knew that the relations between Paul and John weren't great. He would not have, in, in the same way as Harold Pinsker, stepped aside when uh, John took his clothes off. Uh, you, you know, the Beatles are behaving very strangely. So uh, there's that aspect. But I think the real thing is, is the arrival of Klein on the scene. It happens so fast after Klein um, gets involved. And Dick James is obviously aware of Klein's involvement. And there's a, there's a biography of... Klein by a chap called Fred Goodman, and he specifically says, when Klein started working with the Beatles, it could only mean the beginning of the end for Dick James. Yes, and Dick James... He he, he does not want to be on the end of a Klein audit. That's basically... No, and Dick James does have a, you know, he's a very successful businessman. He's got a keen antenna, and, you know, I think himself and and Brian were definitely simpatico together in terms of what they managed to achieve and things have been a little bit adrift for 19 or 18 or 19 months and now he sees which way the wind is blowing and yeah you know the it's it might have been worth the the trouble at that point you know it's it's old school versus you know what the beatles are mm. doing and i actually i find a quote uh from uh Derek Taylor because uh Derek Taylor was a was a witness to Dick James coming in and speaking to Neil Aspinall to, to let him know on the 20th of March that this was this was happening. And George Harrison is there and uh, Derek Taylor says, you know, he just thought, oh, this would be interesting. You know, can I, can I sit in? So we have an eyewitness account and he said, George told Dick that the trouble was that Dick didn't really believe in John and Paul. Dick said that was a cruel, wicked thing to say. And I said, the truth sometimes sounded cruel and wicked, which is a very righteous and pompous thing to say, but I said it was. And Dick <laughs> said, when your opinion is needed, I will ask for it. Mm. I have come here to talk to Neil about private business concerning something very serious to me. Fucking serious to John and Paul, said George. <laughs> Dick never liked rides with the Beatles and I cannot blame him. He turned to Neil and said, the boys have come under the influence of some very bad advisors recently and I'm not talking about you, Neil. I guess we all wondered what this dark hint meant. Was it Klein or was it those predators or was it really us, the Apple clique with our crazy attitudes towards business, the let it be, it'll all be okay amateurs? Yeah, um, it's very sweet of George to 
you know, be, be keeping a, an eye out for, for John and Paul at that point, because yeah. this is the end of March. And the thing you said a minute ago is there's so much other stuff happening at this point. Like we've already done uh, two episodes on the Ballad of the Ballad of John and Yoko, where we try and outline yeah. all the things that they do in that time and put it in song. And at that time, John and Yoko are in bed in Amsterdam, only trying to get us some peace. And, you know, while we see that time as them being in bed and talking to the press, the word gets through to them immediately that this has happened and they get on the blower to to Alan Klein. And Paul is off on his honeymoon in the US and word gets through to him and he gets on the phone separately to Alan Klein. (laughs) Amazingly. So, separately, John and Paul both contact Klein, who is on holiday in Puerto Rico. Now, interestingly, John doesn't fly back to London. He goes to Vienna, Mm. you know. Well, he had to eat some chocolate cake in a bag. But by the 2nd of April, everybody is back in London. And John and Paul and Alan, John, Paul, Alan, George and Ringo, (laughs) uh, John, Paul and Alan visit the bank. And they basically put together a counter bid for one million shares at £2.13 per share, which sort of shows you the price has risen from 39p in 1965 to, to 185 is what the ATV bid, the Lou Grade bid uh, is sitting there uh, with, with Dick James. Alan Klein only needs a million shares to, to get control of the company, so he can go slightly higher and he pushes the price up to £2.13. Yeah, so we should say there is a there is a bid in place from ATV music, which is Lou Grade, and they want to buy uh, all the shares at yes. 185 uh, a yep. share. What what has happened is Dick James and Charles Silver have agreed to sell their shares, and uh, ATV has basically put out a bid to say, we, we will buy all of the shares in the company, including the Beatles and everybody else, we'll buy them all at one, £1.85. Klein's counteroffer is, we will buy 1 million shares at £2.13. And on that same day, Dick James goes to Paul's house at Cavendish Avenue and meets with John, Paul and Klein. And he is, by all accounts, completely unrepentant. You know, it's just business. Mm. Um, This is a nice little earner for you guys. Uh, You know, sell your shares. You'll still have your income uh, from the shares. So we, we should point out at this stage, losing the shares and losing the company doesn't mean they lose the income from the songs. So the song income is being split 50-50 between Northern Songs and on the one hand and John and Paul on the other. Yes, they get a songwriter. So the, the yeah. uh, you know, maybe we, you all know this already, but the publishing company, its role is to administer the, the songwriting, uh, the, the songs themselves and the songwriters still get money and a good publishing company will increase the sum of money for the songwriter and keep a share of the money for itself. So, even through to 21st century when we get into the realm and it's not going to be covered in this podcast of Michael Jackson and everybody else owning Beatles songs throughout all that time this you know Paul McCartney and John Lennon the estate of John Lennon are making the songwriter money off yeah. the Lennon and McCartney songbook but they are not making any publishing money and publishing is also where the control is which is why we have Beatles songs in commercials but not Beatles recordings in commercials uh, that's reasonably clear isn't it I think so. I think so. So Dick, Dick James comments that Paul was annoyed, but John was inconsolable. Yeah. And again, I think that's an interesting uh, distinction. You know, Paul, they're both upset. Paul is, is annoyed, but 
John is just completely devastated by this. And th- that probably, t- you know, the songs are his art. He's now with Yoko. She's, you know, increasing his sense of being an artist and his, his own sort of sense of the value of what he's he's doing. So he, keep keep that in mind. Keep John's state of mind foremost whenever we kind of carry on. But as you say, things just are still happening in the background. They are still happening. John and Yoko are on telly with Eamon Andrews. And so this does dovetail with our Ballad of John and Yoko uh, episode. Um, uh, and they have to, they're also doing photo shoots. That famous photo shoot of them on the boat in the lake and at the row and in the Rolls Royce and all the rest. Yep. That yep. happens that week as well on the 9th of April. Um, they have to reject the ATV offer because ATV are going after the shares that John and Paul own. So the, they formally reject the ATV offer on the, the 10th of April. Yep. And, uh, you know, the, the same week, that weekend, it's the thing we mentioned in our last episode, which is the Sunday Times article saying Alan Klein is a, a dreadful tow rag and shouldn't be trusted and he's an awful man. And who knows why that story was there. <laughs> well, that was, we know, we mentioned the last time, this is Leonard Reichenberg. Has, because again, while this is happening, the the triumph investments name story is you know it's there's court proceedings and that's still rumbling along in 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 the background as well then on the 14th of april they record ballad of john and yuck it's so funny like that day that that sunday time story is in place is the day as far as we know that John goes over to Cavendish Avenue with the band of John and Yoko and Paul goes, yeah, let's record it tomorrow and let's put it out as a single. And then later that week they record Old Brown Shoe. So it's remarkable that they're, all of that is going on. And then they, you know, I, I, I have this theory that even in the modern day that the reason McCartney still goes on tour is that when he's performing and when he's on stage, it's the one time when he doesn't actually have to think about being Paul McCartney, that somebody's going to annoy him or talk to him, that it's a a zen place, even though it's a very public place. And I guess that's the same, that they can just go into a studio and record. They don't, that that's something that nobody else can really be involved in. Yes, it it, it takes them someplace else, away from, uh, from, from sort of the business hassle. And... They they agree on that 16th of April session for Old Brown Shoe. They, they sort of agree a timetable for five more recording sessions in April. So this is still the hangover from the get back yeah. sessions. You know, they're still doing bits and pieces without any real particular aim. Uh, you know, they haven't got to the stage yet where they're focused on, oh, will we do an album and that will be Abbey Road. Then we get to, um, I'm just checking, uh, this is uh, Liberty Bell Day, I think. Well, now, Liberty Bell Day is famously, as we said at the start, this date in May, but... No, 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 <laughs> it's this date in, it's, it's, it's the date in April. Right, there's, there's Stephen's Liberty Bell Day and Jason's Liberty Bell Day. So, yes. if you don't know what we're talking about, Paul McCartney often refers to the day that Alan Klein forced his name on the signature is the day there was a crack in the Liberty Bell, that there was a crack in the Beatles because it had reached that point. And that's the the date at the start of May where we started. But actually, you know, heaven forbid you should be a contrarian, Stephen. Um, You think that the Liberty Bell Day is... Well, we're not exactly sure of the date, but it's it's in the slipstream of the old brown shoe sessions. It's in the following days. Yes, I, I think I think it must be the 17th. Uh, there are sources that variously say the 17th or 18th, and Barry Miles will say the 20th. But because of a letter that is written and dated I, uh, on the 18th, I think it must be 
the 17th. And I do genuinely think that this is a bigger or more consequential happening. Well, what happens on this day is it's bigger than Klein versus a Beatle. It's actually Beatle versus Beatle, or it's it's, it's yes. John and Paul. Um, so talk us through what happens. Well, what what has happened is they put this bid together and to fund the counter offer, um, Apple is going to put up half the money, uh, half of the, they're going to put up a million pounds. Uh, EMI is going to lend them money or they're going to borrow money, another million. And they've got to put up some kind of collateral for this. So, um, you know, security, EMI want some security. And uh, so they all get together. Uh, all the Beatles are there. Peter Brown is there. And they start totting up how many shares have we got? What's the value of the shares? And then we're going to put these shares up for collateral. And Paul, in the course of this, it, it comes out that he's saying, I'm not going to put my shares up. I'm not going to put them up for collateral. They're not available. So you needn't bother including my shares in this total. Now, this makes no sense to me whatsoever. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the deal. They've all come together to do this. The Eastmans are supposedly saying to him, it's a bit risky. You don't want to put your shares up. If you default on the loan, uh, then you'll, you'll lose your shares and EMI will get your shares. But the downside is, if you don't put your shares up, we're not going to be able to afford to take this, uh, yeah. this deal. deal Somebody's so, going to come and take them off you. Yeah. So I, I just, I don't understand that. So there are two consequences from this. One, Klein rides into the rescue and he says, well, okay, I have shares in MGM uh, worth £650,000. I will put those shares up as collateral. And this is a... This is an easy win for Klein. Mm. You know, Paul has already made himself look bad. Klein seizes the opportunity and says, well, I am the white knight. I'm coming in. I will put my assets on the line. He still doesn't have a contract at this stage. Now, Yeah, but he's, he's, you know what he's up to. You, you know what, what he's, he's doing. Exactly. <laughs> he, is, he is inserting himself financially into the affairs of the Beatles. But it's a ridiculously easy win that is handed to him on a plate. Because Paul and or the Eastmans is saying, we're not going to do this because it's too risky. Why is it too risky? These are your shares, your songs. The value of the shares is dependent on your ability to write songs. Well, here comes the, but it, here comes the second part of all of this, though, which is the truth. Then there is the second part. So that's, that's the context for this. Then Klein casually drops into the conversation, presumably. But in the course of totting up the shares, it comes out that Paul has more shares than John. Yeah. Seems totally fine. <laughs> we have to be very careful about sort of the emotive language. And you read lots of different books and they say Paul was secretly buying up shares and there's a kind of pejorative term secretly. But he was using Peter Brown to go and buy these shares. Yeah. And he wasn't telling anybody that he was doing it. And he was definitely putting himself into a position where he was technically earning more money from the songs than was his co-writing partner, John.
there's no reason why he shouldn't be buying shares. Anyone could buy the shares. That's what public Anyone. company means. And so he wasn't, the reason why he had more shares wasn't that he was given more shares. It was just he was investing in himself. He was, you know, companies do share buyback yes. programs. And he just thought, well, he realised the importance of it. And, you know, without telling anyone, <laughs> totally normal, he had <laughs> totally managed normal. to pick up some extra shares. So if we look at the numbers. Um, the numbers, yes, the numbers are very, it's very, very difficult. To, to, I find it very difficult. I mean, I've, I've, I've read nearly two books. I've, I've read about half a dozen or more sources. <laughs> two books on this, not just two books in your life. That's what two books in yeah. my life. <laughs> I've read quite a lot of books and articles. There seems to be a general agreement that, that on that day, Paul was sitting with 751,000 shares. So assuming he had 750,000 to begin with, that, that isn't a big increase. Most sources seem to say that John had about 644, 650,000. Uh, and then you've got to think, well, what happened to his 100,000? Maybe they went into a trust for Julian as part of the divorce settlement. Yeah. And John was holding them as, as a trustee. And it doesn't really matter if they were in a trust or not. If he was holding them as a trustee, he probably had the ability to, to deal with them. Cynthia talks more about there being 100,000 in cash in the trust fund and this was a trust fund that he put up for Julian with the caveat that Julian had to share that trust fund with any future children of John's right so there's a little bit of this uh, difficulty pinning down the precise numbers yeah, but it, what I would say is it doesn't matter it doesn't matter whether <laughs> Paul had a hundred thousand more than John or one thousand more than John this is a question of trust and it's the principle and it doesn't matter how many more he had it's the fact that he went out and he says i had some beanies and i wanted more well that's a quote from many years from now so that's a very much a retrospective quote he still thinks it's okay he's still saying i don't understand you know i'm I'm fine you you could have bought the shares i could have bought the shares but if i suddenly bought you know, if you suddenly discovered that I owned fifty-five percent of nothing is real, what? And I and I fifty-five <laughs> um, percent of nothing is still nothing. Is still nothing. <laughs> Brand awareness, obviously. You would you would not be happy. Well, but it is odd that this story is constantly parroted as Paul went out and bought loads of shares, and the truth of the story seems to be Paul went out and bought a very small number of shares increasing his holding by less than 1%, by basically 0.3%, he increased the number of shares he had. And John, somehow 100,000 shares disappeared. Because we're told in 65 that John has 750,000 shares, yet by 69 he's only got around 650,000 shares. So the majority of the discrepancy, a hundredfold of that discrepancy, is because John has let shares go. But I think we're I think we're assuming. Well, okay. I don't know that John has let them go. I think we're assuming that he has put. Um, They've shares changed into a, into form, a, some kind of financial ha, form into a trust. But if Cynthia is saying there was a trust fund for a hundred thousand pounds, that would represent fifty thousand shares because the shares are valued at around yeah. two pounds, somewhere between one eighty five and two thirteen is where the bids are sitting. So he would only have to put fifty thousand into Julian's trust fund. So maybe the figure of seven hundred and fifty thousand is not correct or from nineteen sixty five. He might have set up the trust fund 
when they were only worth a you know a, a pound each. We don't know the details of that. We are not forensic accountants, Stephen. We are not forensic are accountants. Not. I think we would we would have to go back and unlock the sort of details of the flotation and the details. I I have spent a long time trying to get <laughs> to the bottom of how many shares people had in that room, and th- there's a book called Apple to the Core, and I. I it was written in the early early 1970s. It was reasonably close to the time. I'm thinking I'm going with them, which is, you know, 650,000 plus another 100,000 in, in, in a trust fund. And Paul had 751. So the discrepancy is probably only 1,000 uh, shares. But again, I think the point for John is it doesn't matter whether it was one share, 1,000 shares or 100,000 shares. It's the principle that his partner, that he trusted, that they have this relationship. We, we talked about this, you know, that John thinks they're almost telepathic. You know, they don't need to communicate by using words. And suddenly he finds, and this is the point at which Peter Brown says they nearly came to blows. John was, was going to hit. Yep. Paul, he's being, Klein at one point is holding him back. He's calling him a he bastard. Is, He's calling a bastard. He's shaking his fist at Linda. The other aspect of this is it is badly received by John, or by John, but also by George and Ringo. Mm. So they all, the other three Beatles in the room, take this badly and, and regard this as being a breach of trust. And I don't think you can overstate the impact of that on the relationship between John and Paul. And um, Ken McNabb, who wrote a very good book, and in the end, he says, this was the day the trust died between John Lennon and Paul McCartney. So I'm calling this meeting as Liberty Bell Day. This is when the trust leaves. And the immediate consequence of this is that John, George and Ringo write a letter to the Eastman saying, that's it, your retainer is terminated. Hmm. It's very much a, yeah, there's definitely a before and after to this meeting, isn't there? There's, 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 you know, everything leading up to it and everything after. Ringo still has about 40,000 shares. George sold his shares, apparently, uh, his 40,000. That that is really interesting. Yeah. Particularly when you regard, if you remember George, do you want to come and see what shares? No. Get back. He's not interested. He doesn't want to engage with Dick James at all. Yeah. So, you, you you know, in 1964, I think George formed a company called uh, Morn York or Morn York or something, and then it became Harris Songs. So as soon as his three years was up with with Northern Songs, he uh, went off, and all his publishing is then Harris Songs. Yeah, and interestingly, he got a better deal from Northern Songs than. Uh, John and Paul. They got a 50-50 split. He got an 80-20 split in his favour hmm. from Northern Songs. It's a wonder Ringo didn't go in with his 40,000 shares and said, wait, I, I thought we all had 40,000 shares. That would have been funny. <laughs> this is the point at which there's a fundamental change because what has happened in this meeting is Paul has chosen the Eastmans. He is taking their advice on not putting things up. The other three have terminated the Eastmans' uh, appointment this is where the two camps are separate. And I think this is the big split. Well, it, it also informs the actual Liberty Bell Day um, just yes. over two weeks later. 
Um, but there is still work to be done. So if we're looking at kind of the sequence of events, you know, um, John, a few days later, changes his name. John Ono Lennon happens that week. So he's really going all in on, on this Yoko lady. I think that's fair to say. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. They, they do that on the roof of Savile Row. Um, uh, and then there's uh, this this NEMS triumph business that we mentioned in the last episode is also happening simultaneously at, th- at this time. So that dispute gets rectified on the 24th of April. Um, and they are still recording music at the end of April, um, although it's kind of in a, a bit of a solo vibe. Uh, Paul is doing vocal overdubs on Oh Darling on the 26th. Ringo is doing vocal overdubs on Octopus's Garden on the 29th. And it's being reported in the news that Klein will sit on the board of a restructured Northern Songs if the Beatles get to take it over. Yes, because what has happened is some of the shares that the, the sort of floating around in, in third party ownership, they are now in play and the Beatles are trying to reassure people, uh, you know, existing shareholders that, uh, you know, it won't be Klein, will be running this company, this becomes an issue, will Northern Songs have an independent management so they're having to make this kind of public statement to say well if we win Klein will not be running Northern Song and what's really striking is that there's this kind of big schism between John and Paul on this date and you know they're never going to get back into the studio and record together again or do anything of any huge significance wait a sec what's this 30th of April 1969 what are they doing this is their recording you know my name look up the number so 12 days after the big rye. So, you know, we did an entire episode on this. And honestly, if I if I sit down and think about this, I actually do think get quite emotional about this. I think this this it's a kind of jokey throwaway song, but when you know the background and you know the context and we said it on that episode, but they are the two of them standing around a microphone trying to reach back into that, trying to recapture that teenage listening to the goons, that kind of relationship that they had. And it's just out of reach. And I I think it's completely understandable that Paul says this is, you know, in in the Sessions book, that this is his favourite song. When we did our, uh, you know, my name, look up the number episode, I, I didn't really appreciate just how close it was to all of this goings on. It's at the end of that month of April and... So much has happened. Ballad of John and Yoko has come into existence. There's this fight for the soul of the, the actual songs themselves in, in, in Northern songs. John and Paul are, you know, really the worst thing that has ever potentially happened to their relationship. Certainly the worst thing in the post-Brian era. And now they are recording, you know my name, look up the number and on the last day of April. Yeah, I mean, 12 days before John was having to be physically restrained from from punching Paul. Yeah, but, you know, uh, John and Paul, in kind of totally different ways, uh, are great compartmentalizers. you know? Yeah. I certainly think that Paul, and, you know, you see it through modern-day Paul, he's a great compartmentalizer in the face that he's got a, you know, public-facing Paul, private-facing Paul, family Paul, MPL Paul... He can really tie up all these things and and just, you know, do them all separately and independently. And in a different way, John is also maybe uh, 
without going to amateur psychologist are, but a bit of an emotional compartmentalizer. He's able to be angry, and then when the anger is over, he's able to go do something else and able to be loving and able to be kind of clear and forthright. And, you know, he kind of has this thing where, his, you know, the anger is an honesty, you know, but you just have to yeah. be honest to your feelings in the moment. And that's another form of compartmentalization. So there's a way that that suits the two of them, that suits each other for them to be that way. And John consoled himself by buying Tittenhurst. Well, that's the madness still continues because we're we're trying to no need to stop spending. <laughs> we're trying to work towards the 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 ninth of May, um, which is this kind of Liberty Bell Day. But the first week in May is still bonkers. So they record something, you know, just a little ditty called something. Yeah. Um, and John and Yoko uh, buy Tittenhurst, and the Get Back single comes out. So um, John and Yoko. They buy Tittenhurst, and um, yeah, that's uh, that's a wise financial move. It's great because then they start putting their illegal lake in and uh, yes. re- refurbing <laughs> it. Because if you remember uh, that we mentioned, I think on the Hey Jude LP special ACAS plus bonus episode, which everybody should be subscribing to. Uh, you, you know, they don't move in until mid August, so they're they're getting they have to spend more money. Uh, getting it ready to move into because you know I don't know about you but if I buy a house I never move in until I've built an illegal lake <laughs> well I think uh, yes um, so it's a busy first week I think I said Get Back Single was released it actually hits the top of the charts at the at the start of May it's it's number one it comes out earlier in, in April but there's still and, and the, the presses are being reared up for the bad of John and Yoko um uh, and they're working on You Never Give Me Your Number at Olympic Studio. So they're still able to get, keep their calendars in order, get together when they need to to get together. But You Never Give Me Your Money, to actually realise that it's being recorded on the 6th of May is a bit poignant considering now the surrounding it's, time. Yeah, and Paul makes the point, this is about Klein. Uh, he says in uh, many years from now, this was me directly lambasting Alan Klein's attitude to us. No money, just funny paper, all promises and it never works out. It's basically a song about no faith in the person that found its way into the medley on Abbey Road. John saw the humour in it. <laughs> I'd bet. Is it a funny song? It's certainly poignant. I, I've, I've never really... Um, you know, obviously, you know, we all love the Abbey Road medley and it's a lovely melodic song, but it's... Uh, yeah, it is kind of tragic, you know, to think that that's where he was at. And that's what that that's how it comes out in him. Yeah. And he, he says the same thing about carry that weight. That, that it's just that the burden of all of these things um, were sort of getting to him that he, he tries to be upbeat. He's an upbeat kind of person, but there's sometimes it just you can't. And that it is a very kind of wistful song. And it's, you know, he says, oh, it's about me directly lambasting. Alan Klein, it's, it's, he's not lambasting anybody. It's a very, maybe I'm projecting, but it's more regretful than anger. It's not that he's lambasting anybody. He's just, it's almost, it's regret. Or at least that's in the context of the medley. I think that's what, um, what comes across. That's how across. it feels. Um, so uh, You Never Give Me Your Money is, is recorded on the 6th of May. 7th of May, um, John with Yoko, Paul and George and Klein and their lawyers, they meet uh, to discuss this ongoing issue that we mentioned in the last episode of uh, the the triumph deal and NEMS and frozen royalties and where they need yes. to go and how that's all going to be arranged. And Ringo then arrives after lunch, good old Ringo, and Klein leaves the room and the four of them are together and they're discussing um, the details or the terms of Klein's 
appointment. And, and you, you know, Pete Doggett has documented that, you know, no one's querying Klein's appointment. But, you know, Paul is being Paul about it. And it's still this issue of Klein wants something signed. Yes. So Klein, Klein has been on the scene basically since, you know, the last days of January. He yeah. has been involved in the NAMS situation. He's he's squaring them through the Northern Songs uh, litigation. And bear in mind that independently, Paul and John each ring Klein. He's as a working without a without a contract. The Beatles are then in the in the room discussing this. Their lawyer their lawyers are present in the room, so it's not just the four of them and Yoko. It's the four of them, Yoko, and their lawyers. Pete Doggett, as you say, is making the point. No one is is saying we're not appointing Klein. No one is even querying the the terms, the twenty percent that he's he's the get, which will become a, you sticking, know, point. a, a sticking point. But this is not being queried. So uh, Paul has brought his own uh, lawyer along, and um, but this is not being queried. They're just they're just hammering out the details of the contract, and then the next day, on the eighth of May, uh, the lawyers start shuffling around, uh, working on the drafts, and start collecting signatures. Yeah, so they want to try and basically get signatures in order to have a uh, a binding agreement with John Paul, George Ringo, and Alan Klein. So yeah. they have the meeting on the 7th, uh, which is a Wednesday. The Thursday is uh, the 8th of May, and the lawyers, um, essentially this chap, Peter Howard, is is getting these things signed. So... Who signs first? So, Peter Howard gets John's signature first, and then he drives off to Esher to get George's signature. And at this point, the whole thing descends into a Joe Orton farce, but without the <laughs> group sex and cross-dressing. John shows his copy of the document to Klein, who says, uh, this isn't good. It's, 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 it says it's not binding. John says, yeah, can see what you mean. He calls George, you know, no more mobile phone. So he calls George and said, yeah, this should be changed back into a binding document. You can let the lawyer know when he gets with you. Yeah, fine. The lawyer arrives with George only to discover he hadn't actually brought the document <laughs> with him. The, the, no, he, he had brought a carbon copy. So right. he, get, he gets the carbon copy and he makes a manuscript amendment to make it absolutely binding. George signs it. But before he signs it, George thinks, I'd better call Paul. Mm. But he can't get yep. him because Paul has changed his phone number. Totally normal behavior. And has not given anybody his new number. Now, <laughs> there's something I fantastically He's passive, <laughs> passive aggressive about that. That you yep. just, you know, it's like ghosting somebody. It's just, uh, so Paul. He ghosted the Beatles. Love it. Yeah. I never give you, I never give you my number. Yeah, pretty much. That's what he was talking about. He got an idea while he was recording the songs. So uh, George tries to let Paul know that this is happening. But can't yep. get him. So then George signs it, the carbon, uh, with handwritten amendments. The lawyer drives to Ringo, who signs it. The lawyer then goes back to John to get him to re-sign 
the actual uh, carbon. So, so there are now three signatures on a carbon copy that has had manuscript amendments to it. But this is this needs Paul's signature, and it will even then not be binding until it is formally ratified at a board meeting of Apple. But no one can contact Paul. Well, it's still a good day's work for that lawyer to get three signatures on a piece of paper, three signatures from the most famous men in the world. So, you know, agreeing to 20% for Alan Klein. So, you know, it's he might as well just sleep on it. And the next day, the 9th of May, uh, Friday, he can go off and get uh, Paul's signature and everything will work out somehow. I thought you were going to say he can get up in the morning and he can rush out and buy Zapple 1 and Zapple 2, which are released <laughs> on the 9th of May. Yes, Harbingers of Doom, perhaps. Electronic sound and unfinished music life with the lines. So so this carbon copy is uh, then headed towards uh, Olympic Studios to get Paul to sign it. Yes. But that is where we are going to press pause. Again, we have made it to the 9th of May without... <laughs> without oh. seeing the sun go down on it. So we have taken two roads to the one day um, to get Paul to sign a contract on Friday the 9th of May to put in writing what Alan Klein has wanted in writing since the end of January 1969, which is yes. that he is the de facto business manager of the Beatles. Everything is set, everything is set fair. Everything is set fair. <laughs> What could possibly go wrong is the uh, thing you might want to ask. Um, So once again, in a sense of deja vu or Groundhog Day, we will take up the story next time around on the next... I mean, these these episodes are obviously bigger than Alan Klein. I know we're labelling them as Alan Klein, but we are trying to piece together the story of how this man weaves his way through all the events in the lives of the four of them through this chunk of 1969. It's it's, it's unlike anything the four of them have experienced before. And they've experienced a lot of things in the previous couple of years. And this is a totally new world. Let us be clear, nothing is bigger than Alan Klein. (laughs) So uh, 9th of May 1969, that's where we will start the next time. We remain available in all the usual places. (laughs) Tune in in next week. (laughs) Tune in next week when we look at it from another point of view. This is like the Rashomon of uh, podcasts. Um, We we remain available in all the usual places uh, on um, the interweb at nothingisrealpod.com, the Twitter account at BeatlesPod, which is me, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, which is Stephen. Um, we, <laughs> um, there's there's the Instagram, which is William. There's the TikTok, which doesn't really happen. And all the other fun things. We have lots of fun stuff on the website. We have our ACAST Plus supporters episodes. And uh, we've put out some uh, enjoyable ones so far this year. We've got Tops and Tails extra episodes for our Hey Jude episodes, for instance, looking at John and Cynthia and the Hey Jude album as well. We want to thank all our ACAST Plus supporters. And you might want to check out the selection that we have available there and I think that's everything that uh, that we need to mention isn't it I, mentioned I think so I think so oh, I'm, I, I can hardly wait to find out what happens next it's not good anyway for, the, for now I'm Jason Carty I'm Stephen Cockcroft and this has been Nothing Is Real thanks for listening
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.